Body Bags with Joseph Scott Morgan. You work hard all your life. You raise a family, three boys. You're coming to the end of your career. You're looking forward to retirement. You've been sweating away in Central Florida all these years and you decide to buy a retirement home up in the mountains of Tennessee. You've got your eyes set on the prize. And suddenly one day, your life comes to a swift and violent end at the hand of your own child. Today we're going to talk about the massacre of the Amato family and their son, Grant Amato. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. Back with me today is Jackie Howard, executive producer of Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. Jackie, tell us about this tragedy. Joe, Grant Amato is a 29-year-old nurse, and he is accused of killing his family members at their home. The reason is an obsession with a Bulgarian webcam model that he met as a result of his addiction to online porn. He had stolen $200,000 from his family to pay this online model. The police investigation into the Amato family began after a co-worker called police. When Cody Amato had not come into work, the deputies circled the Amato home, and inside, about 9 a.m., they found three people dead. According to Grant's arrest warrant affidavit, Chad Amato, his dad, was found dead in the kitchen of their home. Cody Amato was killed in a storage room, and Margaret Amato, his mom, was found shot dead in an office chair. Police officers say Cody and Margaret Amato suffered execution-style wounds. Of that money that was stolen from his family, the $200,000, $60,000 was stolen from his brother Cody. He also stole Cody's guns and sold them without his permission, all to fund his obsession with this Bulgarian model. What Amato was doing was taking the money that he had received or stolen from his family and was wiring it to Bulgaria to this model. Grant Amato was not a a stupid person. Uh, you would, you know, hearing all of this, you would think that uh, he didn't have two cents in his brain to rub together. But this kid was... Uh, professionally sound to a certain degree. He was a registered nurse. He and his brother had both uh, graduated from nursing school. And he, you know, just prior to these events, he was actually practicing as a nurse. But his his life kind of went down this dark path. At one point in time, he had kind of been bulked up, was involved in weightlifting. He participated in airsoft competitions. He loved shooting guns with his brother. And his he and his brother got along really, really well. But over a period of time, uh, Jackie, you know, he he became very, very diminished as he got into this world of the sexual addiction where he's just feeding money uh, to this woman in Bulgaria. And, uh, you know, friends have talked about how he he almost took on almost a skeletal like appearance. Eyes were sunken back in his head. His weight had dropped precipitously, probably lost close to 50 pounds or so. So when he, you know, would pass her an area he had almost like a spectral appearance to him and, you know, kind of ominous when you begin to think about it. Um, his brother, Cody, had actually gotten a degree as uh, as a nurse anesthetist. And uh, Grant had attempted to go through the same program, but 
unlike his brother, he actually flunked out of the program. Some people say that this was the moment in time when his life began to kind of tumble down. He had these aspirations of becoming like a super duper millionaire, you know, independently wealthy. And he and his brother had, had planned on having matching BMWs that they would drive around in. And, you know, they were going to live in this house that their parents had down in Florida. And the parents were going to retire to Tennessee. As a matter of fact, they had already uh, targeted a home up there that they were going to move into. So it's it's all a, a bunch of tragic circumstances that led to uh, these fatal events, Jackie. We know that the surviving brother, Jason Amato, told police that Grant Amato had spent about two weeks at a facility getting treated for depression. Grant Amato was actually enrolled in a 60-day treatment program for Internet and sex addiction, but he only completed about two weeks of that program before he came home. According to the testimony from Grant Amato, he was in a heated argument with his father and got kicked out of the home because he did not cut off communication with the Bulgarian model as advised and instructed by his family. My question to you, Joe, is, Obviously, these parents are not forensic specialists and would not have been looking at it with this critical of an eye as you do. But should there have been things that they noticed or maybe they did and that's what led to this? Well, yeah. You know, you talk about forensics and, you know, I often have students, you know, ask me, you know, well, Professor Morgan, what what should I do in forensics? And one of the biggest growing areas, two of the largest areas in forensic practice are actually uh, forensic computer science and forensic accounting. And certainly that came into play in this case, Jackie. I mean, can you can you even begin to fathom um, seeing your bank accounts literally drained away? I think that it was close to the actual dollar, specific dollar amount. It's like $150,000. And that was just liquidity of cash that was that was uh, drawn away. And then I think that there was um, a loan that had been taken out on the family home for in the range of about 60000 And then in addition to that, uh, Grant had uh, swiped uh, in excess of, of uh, $10,000 from his brother. So we're, we're, we're above $200,000 at this point in time. So, you know, when you're piecing this together from a forensic standpoint, you know, everything Everything, you know, has a contact uh, back in time with with an investigation. You look for these little points of connection all the way through the forensic narrative. And so you would when you're piecing this together, you try to match up the narrative of what you're hearing as an investigator with the cold hard facts. And if if you can look at the numbers and there are very specific numbers here, you can kind of see this drain. If you put it on a graph, you can see this kind of downward tumble that was taking place. Now, in addition to this, let's keep in mind, uh, Grant Amato was not hopping on a on a plane and flying to Eastern Europe. He was doing all of this. Uh, let me let me rephrase that. He was in contact with this cam model via the internet. So every time, every time he would engage with her, there is actually a digital footprint that's left behind. And and one more interesting thing I found about this, you know, when we begin to talk about electronic forensics and how this kind of sex trade works like this, in order to facilitate this kind of on-camera session that he would have with her, he had to purchase these digital coins, if you will, and um, there's even evidence that he had 
purchased roughly $600 worth of these coins just prior to what they believe were the deaths, the murders of, of his family members. And that goes to tell you how obsessed he was in this world that he had kind of buried himself into. of my career, I've walked into many scenes where there have been multiple deaths, but I, I don't know that there is anything that kind of literally rips my heart out than walking into a blood-soaked environment where a family has almost literally been completely wiped out. And in the case of the Amato family, save the perpetrator and uh, the brother that was not at the house, that's basically what happened, Jackie. Grant Amato is accused of shooting his father first in the kitchen and then killing his mother and brother execution style. What does that mean? What makes a murder an execution style death? Classically, when we begin to think about execution style uh, homicides, what we're talking about is the perpetrator being in a dominant position over the victim. And generally, the individual that is shot will either be in a seated position below the level of a standing perpetrator. They'll be kneeling. They'll be laying. That is the victim I'm referring to. And in this particular case, when you see the mother, Margaret, she is actually positioned at her desk, Jackie. And if folks at home will feel on the back of their head, there's a little protuberant area on the back of your skull that's called the occiput. And if you'll put your hand to the right side of the midline, that's actually where Margaret's entrance was. And that gunshot wound that she sustained is a classic execution style gunshot. It passes through the right occiput, that bone, very bony structure. It's very thick. As a matter of fact, it's one of the thickest bones of the skull. And it goes from right to left. And it actually comes out below her left eye. It exits out of the cheek. You know, in in my estimation, she probably never knew what happened. And it's, it's an interesting thing. I was kind of contemplating this. How many times had her child, Grant, walked into her office space in that area? And she thinks nothing of it. I mean, she's sitting there. She might hear the click of his heels on the on the floor, you know, approaching from the rear, she feels safe in this environment and, and you would feel safe. This is your home. And then all of a sudden, I I don't even know if your brain can calculate hearing the sound as you're shot in this primal area of the brain that causes everything to shut down. You know, people always ask me, you know, is this an instantaneous death? This is probably about as close as you can have to an instantaneous event because you're, you're knocking out the primal brain center. This is passing through uh, most likely, at least the top aspect of of the brain stem, taking out the cerebellum, and then you know crossing over the midline of the brain and then exiting out of the face. It's it's very horrific, but in her case, it was very very quick. Um, when you consider Dad, this is Chad. He was found in an adjacent area, adjacent to the kitchen and this sort of thing. He also had gunshot wounds to. Uh, the back of his head um, on the right aspect as well. So that gives you 
when you begin to look at entrance wounds um, and examine them, not only are you getting an idea of the position of the victim, you're also getting a, an idea of the position of the perpetrator. So if you'll just imagine that in this case, Grant Amato would have been to the right rear of his father, because as it turns out, there was actually two, two gunshot wounds to his dad's head. And one of these, and this is quite gruesome when you begin to think about it, one of these actually clipped through the right aspect, the rear aspect of his head, came out, went back in through his ear, and then back into his head. And then the wait, other wait, wait, one, wait, wait, wait. Say that again. It did the bullet. Yeah. What was the trajectory of the bullet? Yeah. What you're talking about is um, and many times you'll see this, Jackie, you'll have these cases where you'll have um, uh, an entrance, then an exit and then a re-entrance. And then finally, you may have another exit and it's all the same bullet that is creating this cavity in the brain. And interestingly enough, you know, when the forensic pathologist, Dr. Jones, actually testified in this case at, uh, at trial, the prosecution was asking her questions. How, how exactly do you track these wounds? And this is something we do in the morgue. And this is kind of fascinating. When we have multiple gunshot wounds, particularly that are so close together, like in the case of, of Chad Amato, we'll use what are referred to as dowel rods that you can buy at any large box store, Home Depot, you know, Lowe's or Walmart, and they're wooden dowels. And we have tiny ones in the morgue, and we can actually pass these through the defect that's created by the projectile. And it'll give you an idea of the, um, of the trajectory of the round, if it travels from above to below or from below to above. And also, uh, the directionality, if it goes from right to left or left to right, or if it just stays right straight, straight away down the midline. And when you do this, it's kind of odd when you think about it, but it's as a demonstration tool, particularly when you go to court, if you have these dowel rods in place with multiple gunshot wounds and you've got tracks that are crisscrossing one another and it makes it highly complex. When you put these static little pieces of wood in there and they're projecting in and out of the body, and you snap a photograph of that, suddenly the jury gets an instantaneous picture of the relationship between the shooter and the victim. And that that's powerful stuff when you're a, a, a jury member and say you're not used to seeing this sort of thing. And Lord knows who in the world would be, particularly in a case like this, that's just absolute pure butchery. And But it orients them to that space and time and the orientation between Grant and his father's head when he executed him. So let's talk a little bit about each crime scene, because we have three. We have the kitchen. We have the room that the mother was in, in the office chair, and a storage room. Would you not have heard the shots being fired for the dad? I mean, the mother the mother and the father were home at the same time. So would you not have heard the, the shot that killed the father? You know, that's that's a fantastic question, Jackie. And I have to tell you, I think that in my estimation, at least, I don't think you could pull this off with all three of these individuals in the house at the same time. I think he laid in wait and kind of worked this out systematically. In my opinion, the mother is in a very static position, Jackie. When you see, and I've seen these crime scene images, and they are absolutely horrible. The mom is just kind of in a very restful position. There's no 
evidence of struggle or twisting about or this sort of thing. She is literally laying forward, pitched forward, if you will. And that's 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 a pretty accurate term, pitched forward on the surface of this desk. The dad, however, is laying in what we refer to as a supine position. And that's kind of fancy talk for laying face up. And what's so interesting about this is that when he is observed at the scene, Jackie, one of the investigators that was out there noted that even though he is face up, there's an indication, Jackie, that he had been moved. He had been moved post-mortem. And the way that we determine that is that when a body is laying in a specific position dead, blood will settle to a particular area. Okay, so let's just say, for instance, someone is um, like Mr. Amato was lying on his stomach. Okay, blood will settle to his chest, to his anterior chest, and to his abdomen, maybe to his thighs. You'll have points of contact that will be blanched out. And that blood is going to settle to those areas and fix. Remember, their bodies weren't found to the next day. But if you if you manipulate that body in any way, which we believe happened with Chad, you will still have this anterior or frontal presentation of lividity, but it'll be absent on the back. And that's one of the things we look for to see if a scene has particularly been staged. And the term staging came up over and over and over again, that he tried to make this case or try to make the scene appear different. And one other very interesting element with Chad's body is the fact that he was wearing a holstered weapon. Can you imagine that? He's wearing a holstered weapon on his belt in his home, and it's oddly positioned. It's on his right side, but it's turned so that the butt of the weapon is facing forward. So you would, that's called a cross draw configuration where an individual, you think about an old cowboy movie where a a gunfighter would reach across their body and pull the weapon out. Say if you're left-handed, you pull it from your right hip and and hold it in your left hand. But here's the twist. Chad's right-handed, but yet this, this oddly positioned weapon is positioned on his right hand so that if he had to draw that weapon, he would have had to literally twist his arm around at the elbow in order to facilitate that. And that's another indication that this happened after death. They believe that Grant probably moved the body around in an attempt to strap this weapon onto his dad. And again, another just oddball set of circumstances. When you you get to Cody's body, the brother, and this is this is so sad, you know, because Cody and Grant were very close. Um, and I remember watching this trial and you can see Grant sitting at the table and just weeping when they're talking about his brother uh, that he he shot. And, you know, we talked about execution with mom and dad with Cody, Jackie. He shot his brother in the face. And what that tells us is that he was eye to eye with his brother, who was roughly a year and a half to two years older than him, a kid that he had grown up with, that they had participated in airsoft with, they'd gone hunting with, they'd done martial arts, they'd traveled to Japan together. Can you imagine? You're there with your sibling and you were so obsessed. You're so obsessed with this sexual addiction that you have to this person that that lives in Eastern Europe that you would take a handgun and point it at your own brother's face and kill him. And that's what he did. He shot him right below his right eye. And that bullet, that bullet traveled through his brother's head 
and knocked him down to the ground. He's still standing there. He had just gotten home from work, Jackie. He was still wearing, you know, his brother's a nurse as well. He's still wearing his green scrub suit and even his lunchbox. You know, it's one of those insulated lunch boxes, like the, the zip, you know, that you can pack all your, it was laying immediately adjacent to his, to his brother. And, and in another attempt to stage a crime scene, he had taken a weapon and laid it immediately adjacent to his brother's hand. And investigators believe that Grant had done this in an attempt to make this look like a murder-suicide, that his brother had walked in the house shot his mom and dad, and then took his own life. And, you know, the problem with that, when you begin to look at it out of all of the suicides, and I think I've said this before, but it it bears repeating, you know, as medical legal death investigators, you think that, oh boy, you know, you work at the coroner's office, the medical examiner, you work a lot of homicides. You know, suicides actually outnumber homicides probably two to, probably three to one, actually. So we work a lot more suicides. I don't recall... In the course of my career, I I can probably count on one, maybe two hands, how many cases I've worked of self-inflicted gunshot wounds where people shot themselves in the face. Um, It's just an a, it's what we call an atypical gunshot wound. It it doesn't fit the pattern. It's more consistent. And and here's here's the even bigger problem. Uh, When the forensic pathologist was describing uh, these injuries, you know, she's she's relating the fact that this. Um, that this was not a close contact gunshot wound. So again, that would mean him holding the weapon away from his face in order to, to shoot himself in the face. Cases like this that involve a lot of trauma, there's a lot of blood there for the investigators, uh, people that work in my field of medical legal death investigation. It's very difficult to kind of make your way through these scenes. Uh, First off, you're worrying about uh, the complexity of it, how you can cross contaminate things, how you're going to destroy evidence. And I got to tell you, this this case, the Amato case stands out to me because it is so very complex that these investigators would have really have had to take their time in processing this scene, Jackie. Well, especially considering that they had three scenes to process. So I'm wondering, Joe, in looking at how this was staged, you have each victim in a separate room. And as you said, it was thought that these individuals were killed one at a time. The dad was killed first in the kitchen. The mom must have come home and not gone into the kitchen. And the brother was found in a storage room. I'm curious about the storage room. How do we get the brother to go to the storage room? Was it in the garage? I mean, how how do we keep the brother from not going through the house and discovering what's going on? Was this planned or was this a crime of passion and opportunity for it to happen that way? I think that this was planned, Jackie. And, I, you know, I go back to my earlier uh, point that uh, it's my belief that um, that he laid in wait for these individuals. He knew he, he kind of if you ever you know, if you ever watch a cat that's going to spring on something, I think that that's what he was. He was sitting on go in the house as the opportunity presented itself. 
as he presented himself as stealthily as possible in this environment, which he knew very well. Remember, this is his home. He knows all the blind spots. He knows the places to hide. He also knows um, the tendencies of the people that that he lived in the house with mom, dad, and brother. And just think about it. I mean, we, you know, for those of us in our audience that live with individuals, you know what the tendencies are, you know, where they're going to come and go and that sort of thing, you know, their timing, you know, when they're going to arrive at a home. So um, he, everything is stacked in his advantage. And, you know, <laughs> this is, this is quite interesting little aside here, but, you know, when you come home, home is associated with, Haven. It's associated with a place of safety, a place of security. So your guard is down, you know, when you walk into a home. It's not like you're turning down a dark alley and you don't know what's down there. It's someplace you've never been before. But in the context of coming home and making your way through the house, it's it's going to give you a, a false sense of security. So if you've got somebody that means to do you harm, in this case, Grant Amato, then your guard will be down for that amount of time. And it's easy for him to pray. And, you know, and this is another thing. And when you have this familiarity, remember I was talking about the mom, how she was kind of uh, in this relaxed position at the desk. Um, You don't expect for your son to kill you. Uh, If your dad, same thing. And when Cody comes home, he doesn't, you know, uh, you know, his brother could approach him quite easily. And he would have his guard down. He'd just be holding his lunchbox in his hand. He'd be there in his scrubs and he'd be, you know, hey, bro, how you doing? And the next thing you know, he the last thing he sees is maybe a puff of smoke and his life comes to an end. And so all of these, given the close proximity of kind of this storage area that's there, which is near a point of entrance, um, you've got mom. Um, that is there in in her you know in her office area, which most of us feel very safe, and then Dad that's in the kitchen. Um, their guard is going to be down at those moments in time. What's kind of interesting about this case, though, and you really have to just let me say this to you and let you wrap your brain around this. After Mom and Dad had died, investigators estimate, and just listen to this very carefully and let it sink in. Investigators estimate that Grant Amato stayed in the house with his executed parents, these individuals that had loved him, taken care of him, tolerated him through all of this nonsense that he was involved in. He stayed in that house, Jackie, for four hours with their bodies. Can you imagine? Staying in there as your parents uh, lay there on the floor and in their office area, waiting, just waiting for your brother Cody to come walking through the door so that you can end his life, too. Another interesting aspect of this, Joe, is the it. it, Well, actually, there's more than one. Grant was a member of a competitive aerosoft team, which means he had firearms experience, maybe not lethal firearms experience. But to be able to win an aerosoft competition, you have to be accurate. And also. Grant Amato had some medical training, so he would have known the best place to shoot to kill. Yeah, right. You are, Jackie. Yeah, he was part of an airsoft team, as was his brother. I mean, he had firearms proficiency in addition to airsoft proficiency. You know, airsoft proficiency, even though it's not the same as an actual firearm, it it gives you the it gives you proficiency in the area of being able to aim and put 
put the weapon on target, if you will, and moving moving targets, you know, because these guys run all over the place when they're doing that. And there's several images of him where he's all camoed out, and, you know, he's dressed and he's carrying these weapons that look like military style weapons, but they're airsoft weapons. But you have to keep in mind, he also owned uh, and the family did uh, multiple real firearms as well. And there's even images of him out, you know, firing shotguns and all these sorts of things. So he was not uncomfortable, uncomfortable in in a world of firearms. And so um, that that becomes kind of rote, you know, when when you begin to think about uh, the family coming home and him essentially ambushing him. I mean, it's like he had been practicing for this for a while um, in his mind. Um, because, you know, when everything began to collapse around him and, you know, one thing I forgot to mention to you, you had mentioned that he, he was, uh, was a nurse and he was a nurse. He just, he flunked out of, uh, anesthesia school. Um, and, um, but he was a practicing nurse, but this is interesting as well, Jackie, you know, he had, uh, been caught at work, um, in the Orlando area at, at his job, um, stealing. Uh, stealing uh, a drug that is used uh, as a, a sedative, what they refer to as a, uh, a pre-anesthesia drug. It's one of these drugs that they'll give you, you know, like <clears throat> I'll give you an example for anybody that's ever had surgery. You know, uh, that the, when the nurse goes to inject your, your IV line, they'll say, now you're going to feel something cold in your line. And then all of a sudden the world begins to get kind of milky and, and warm and that sort of thing. And that's, that's kind of what they do before they give you the, the jolt of the anesthesia. Well, this drug in particular, Jackie, he had stolen clo- uh, in excess of $4,000 worth of these drugs. And not only had he been fired from the hospital, but they were pressing charges for grand theft in addition to this. And I think that this probably wound up in the suspension of his nursing license. So all of this was like kind of this perfect storm that was cycling about in his life, uh, what, you know, that was going to send him down in flames. And unfortunately, you know, his family wound up bearing the brunt of it. Why would he have stolen these drugs joe is it possible that he intended to use them on his parents or maybe sell them to get more money for his you, webcam girlfriend that's a fantastic question jackie and uh, i i think that it's probably going to be the latter more than likely because yeah and i'll tell you why first off there was no evidence that they had this particular drug propofol is the name of it there was no evidence of this in their system and this had happened a couple of months prior to, but he had been acquiring these meds. Um, I think that there would be a higher possibility that he could have sold them. What he, his rationale that he gave when he was questioned was, I guess he viewed himself as some kind of Florence Nightingale because he presented himself to the staff and to the police. He's like, well, you know, the, my patients on the floor were under medicated. So I wanted to assist them by, injecting them with this medication in order to, I don't know, alleviate their pain or their anxiety or whatever it was. But I found that quite telling as well. This is a very dangerous environment for somebody that has this kind of uh, proclivity, if you will, uh, to be around really sick people and uh, applying this very, very powerful hypnotic drug that can really depress the system. They're very fortunate that if he did apply it to these people, that uh, he didn't kill them. So, you know, no one really knows what he did with the drug, but they they know that the drugs were missing and they tied it back to him. Um, And I think that that's, again, this goes into this 
kind of pathology that he's dealing with, he was on a, a real downhill slide. I'm Joseph Scott Morgan, and this is Body Bags. <laughs>